If you would turn to Ephesians 6, and if you have your thumb on Isaiah 52, we'll be there later. Um, maybe not that much later, but as you're turning there, um, when I was a kid, um, I had a, a particular foot problem um, that required um, special shoes. I, apparently, I had no arch in my foot, and so to somebody that was important enough that I had to do foot exercises every night, like basically just on my, I remember holding my mom's hands and just raising up and down. Somehow that was supposed to help. But also these special shoes um, that were supposed to uh, fix my, my arch. Um, and I had to wear them even when I played with my friends, um, so outside. And these were, these were leather shoes, but they weren't like cool leather shoes. They were like brown high-top dress shoes is basically um, what they were. Um, so not, not only did they not look cool, but when playing with my friends, the soles of the shoes had no traction on them whatsoever, and so I was always slipping around on the concrete or, or whatever, and so it was not good. It may have been some benefit to help my arch, but it didn't help. They weren't the right kind of shoes for kickball or you know, tag, certainly not climbing trees. I tell that story not to tell you how difficult my childhood was. My mom's right back there. Well, because this morning, we're dealing with a third piece of armor which goes on our feet. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by uh, the gospel of peace. Uh, Paul's point uh, is that for spiritual warfare, we need to have the right shoes on. And he calls them the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Of peace. Now, it probably doesn't hit you as you're reading through the Bible just how often you see the words feet or foot. It's probably not a section within your systematic theology book, you know, the systematic theology or the doctrine of feet. Um, but it's listed over 300 uh, times. Uh, that's a lot. Um, for instance, Asher, son of Jacob, was said to have feet of iron and bronze. That would have been hard to walk around in. That was a metaphor, obviously, talking about his tenacity as he went into battle. Or the bride of the Song of Solomon is said to have uh, beautiful feet um, in her sandals. Uh, those references aren't really all that important for what we're discussing today. But one, one thing should probably jog your memories is from Ephesians, just how often Paul points to our feet, um, or at least what we do with our feet. So that was walking. Walking is an important theme. Uh, within the book of Ephesians, within the, the Bible itself. And so Paul is said to walk in unity. He is said to walk in love. He said no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He says to walk in um, wisdom. And what do we walk with, children? Our what? Our feet. That's right. Um, these metaphors are important because our feet carry us wherever we go, literally and metaphorically, whether that be into a good place or a bad place. Some, for instance, is good feet. Psalm 56, 13 says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And so these are good feet carrying us into good places, which is the light of life. Uh, and then bad feet, example, Proverbs 1, 15 through 16, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. So bad feet that run to evil and are quick to shed blood. 
This is reminiscent of what we see in Romans chapter 3 and in um, Isaiah chapter 59, which we looked at last week. So our feet are important, especially when we think about the context of our verses today. And so two weeks ago in um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul has told us what we're up against and telling us that we're up against the schemes of the devil. And so Paul says, stand against the devil. That's the command that we're to obey within this section, verses 10 through 20 or 18 or 17 or whatever it is. Stand. The participles that follow that and the various pieces of armor support the idea of how we are to stand. But the command is to stand. And so we're in a spiritual battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of, of evil. Um, two weeks ago, I guess it was, that we looked primarily at the devil under two headings and sort of understanding of how we can understand how he comes against us within this age during the millennium. And he says, we did it under two headings. First was Jesus has defeated the devil, certainly at the cross, but the devil is still angry. And so Revelation chapter 12, talking about the time that is now. Also the second heading, the devil is powerful, uh, but still limited. And so those were the headings. If you want to go back, if you haven't heard those sermons, you can go back and find them online about how we are to understand the devil and his ways in a balanced way. So in order to stand, Paul says, we must fasten on the belt of truth. We must put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then this morning, that was last week, this morning, we must put on the gospel shoes of peace. Uh, the question is, what does he mean by that? As shoes for your feet, having put, up, put on the readiness, readiness given by um, the gospel of peace. Well, it's one of two things. Either Paul is talking about the readiness of the Christian. That comes from the gospel itself. And so we stand in the peace of the gospel because we've already believed it. Or Paul is talking about this readiness is to a readiness to preach the gospel. So two very different things. Which, which do you think it is? But Paul was referring back to Isaiah chapter 52, which Kiefer read from earlier. Um, so I'm going to lead, read just verse 7 just for a moment and listen. Which do you think it is? Do you think it's the readiness to preach the gospel or is it the standing, ready to stand in the peace of the gospel? So as I read this, Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So bring good news sounds very much like he's referring to the preaching or sharing of the gospel, and so to be the readiness to share the gospel, preach the gospel to others. But then, we, as we've already said in Ephesians 6, feet fitted um, with the gospel of peace is in the context of standing itself, that's supporting the idea of how we stand. Stand is the command, and the various pieces of armor supporting us and enabling us to stand. So that one sounds like the other. So not the preaching of the gospel, but standing in the peace. Uh, that is had by believing the gospel. So which is it? Well, I think it's both. That's always the easy answer. Makes for a longer sermon, but it's easier if I just say it's both, just to be safe. No, I, I think it's both, um, not just because it's easier. Isaiah 52 is clearly talking about the preaching of the good news, but the messenger or the herald who then goes and preaches the good news with beautiful feet, he already believes that message. He already understands it, he already believes it, he already knows it, he already believes it, and it's from that that he shares this message. And so we'll get to that when we get to Isaiah 52 a bit, a bit later. But that's what we're going to be looking at. Certainly we are to preach the gospel, and to preach it we must know it, and we must 
believe it. And so I think it's obvious this passage has something for all of us uh, this morning. If you're here today and you've never truly found the peace that comes only by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, that means you have bad feet. And those bad feet have been taking you into bad places. But good news, after that we're going to talk about Jesus and see how Jesus has worn these shoes first, which is most important for you. So if you are not a believer, or if you're not sure if you're a believer, this is where I really want you to listen. I want you to listen to the whole thing, but pay particular attention there. And then for us as believers, it's always good for us to be reminded, even as we were this morning during the Sunday school hour, about what it means that we've received the gospel or believed the gospel and then preached the gospel then to others. So there's something here uh, for all of us. So are your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel? Now, as I said, we're going to start kind of with where you are if you have not yet believed it, um, if your feet are not fitted. And so that's feet, I think it's in your outlines, that lead to destruction. Uh, last week we looked at Isaiah 59, not 52, but Isaiah 59, when we looked at the breastplate of righteousness. And we read, really read only the first or the last verses 15 through 21. Uh, we kind of skimmed over the first 14 verses, stopping at various places, really to find some context. But in verses 7 and 8, Isaiah talks about the feet that lead to destruction. And Paul picks up on that same language uh, in Romans chapter 3, which is really where we're going to turn right now. Um, so we still are going to go to Isaiah 52 in a moment, but if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It's a familiar text to all of us, but I want us to sort of have our eyes on it as we work down through it. So Romans chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 10. You there? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or useless. No one does good, not even one. Now, we don't have time to delve in uh, to these verses with any r real depth, but kids, um, what is the chief end of man? Kids, what is the chief end of man? I ask this question a lot. Kids, what is the chief end of man? Oliver? What'd you? Oliver, I'll let you answer since you raised your hand. Go ahead. To glorify God. And there's one more part. And enjoy him forever. Very good. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So think of that. We might ask, uh, no one is righteous? No one does good? Last week we looked at, I brought up two people, Gandhi and Mother Teresa. Um, and we asked, based on what they do, they're not righteous? They don't do good? No. Luther qualifies what is good and righteous as being motivated only by good, the goodwill of others or for others, and more importantly, the glory of God. God is saying through Paul that those who do not know Christ do their good works, um, good works for vainglory um, or out of fear of punishment or uh, for profit uh, for themselves. Um, no one is good. No one is righteous, and despite that, unless God draws us supernaturally, we will not come to Him. We will not seek Him. Paul goes on to explain then the primary actions, at least two of them, of the one who does not know Christ, focusing on the mouth 
of the person who does not know Christ. And then the feet. First, the mouth. Their throat is an open grave. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And remember, Romans 3, as Paul is, is talking about all of mankind now. You had pagan Gentiles in chapter 1, and you had Jews in chapter 2, and Paul goes through each and explains why they're both unrighteous and why they both need Christ. And here he's summing up them all. Their throats an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These are all quotations uh, from the Old Testament. And Paul's point is that man uses his words to inflict harm upon others. And so why so much attention upon the mouth? Well, Matthew 15 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. He goes on, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart, or it reveals a person's true nature. And so those who don't know Christ speak filthy words, or they use their words to manipulate and deceive others for their own gain. They gossip and slander and malign others. All those descriptions are meant to show how the unsaved man uses his words to harm others. We used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words will never hurt me. Remember when we used to say that? I don't think people say that anymore. If they do, I don't think they mean it, because almost everything is condensed into some sort of, some form of hate speech or another that people are saying because someone has an alternative view or an opinion or espouses a thought that's different than my mind, that's hate speech and that's done violence to me. That's what we're hearing on college campuses um, all over the place. Jane Fonda the other day joked that it would be legitimate, a legitimate option, joked that it would be a legitimate option to murder pro-lifers because they want to stop women from murdering their babies. Joy Bear said that people in Palestine, in, in the in Palestine, Ohio, got what they deserved from that train derailment because they predominantly voted for Trump. We see open graves and venom all over the place today. They're revealing their nature. And then we come to the feet that we're particularly interested in today. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Robert Haldane, everybody remember Robert Haldane's commentary on the book of Romans? Probably it's an old Puritan still the best, probably, um, front to back. Uh, but he says, The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys his fellows to satisfy his ambition and revenge. You might rebut, rebut what about lions that destroy the cubs of rivals so that the females will be then ready, ready to mate? Surely, yeah, that's true. Lions don't commit holocaust or commit abortions to the astronomical levels that that man does. Or think of the violence in the Congo going on right now. Children now being forced to work in horrible circumstances so we can have smartphones and electric cars. And we just, it's okay. Those who say they care. Um, man, apart from Christ, is violent in word and deed. Paul says they don't even know how to act peaceably with one another. Why all of this? Well, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. So you might say, oh, I've not killed anyone. I've never forced children to work in mines. Well, the doctrine of total depravity, which Romans chapter 3, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that all men are equally depraved, nor does it mean that all men are animals or savages, 
nor does it mean that man is, is as depraved as they could be. It means that they are, that in the totality of his being, there is no part of man that has escaped the influence of sin. Man suffers from total depravity in the sense that his whole nature is corrupt. There's not a single atom within the natural man that is not touched by the influence of evil. This points us to the fact that there is no hope for the one who has not been fitted with the gospel of peace. And this is the condition of men since the fall. So his feet are quick to destruction, and those feet are slippery. Deuteronomy 32-35 is the basis of Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the sinners in the hands of an angry God. We've read that with our children. I think our children were pretty young when we read, read through that. I think it would be a good, good night's reading. But in Deuteronomy 32-35 says, Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. swiftly. So this is the judgment upon all men who are apart from Christ and so have not had their feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Edwards goes on to make four points. I'll just make them really quickly. Um, just like a man who stands or walks in slippery, in slippery places is in danger of falling, humanity is exposed to destruction. But secondly, this destruction is, is not some far-off thing or something that could be put off. It's something that could come upon us suddenly without, without warning. Sudden destruction. The end that marks any person um, is not known. Um, whatsoever can come at any moment. Third, uh, they are liable to fall of themselves, meaning Edward's point is that it, it doesn't require someone else to cause us to fall. No one else has to cast us down, could fall under our own, own weight. Um, and the reason that they are not thrown down already is only because, this is the fourth thing, the reason they are not thrown down already is only because God's appointed time for their demise has not yet come. At that time, God will not hold any of them up any longer. And at that time, at God-appointed time, their slippery feet will have led them to destruction. This is a sobering truth for those who think that the longevity of their life is owing to their diet or to their exercise or to taking care of themselves or to the fact that their grandma lived to the, uh, to the, the ripe old age of, of 90. The simple and sobering truth is that if you are alive, it is because God has not let you slip. Just because you don't feel His hand upon your back or under your arms or holding you up, doesn't make it not so. Your foot, foot shall slip in due time. And when that happens, if you are apart from Christ, you will be face to face with a just God. And you will know a divine violence that endures for all eternity. But at this time, while you are still held up, there is hope. Because Jesus has brought the good news. As we said the last two weeks, the armor that we've been given to wear for our protection against the schemes of the devil is not our armor. It's God's armor. As verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. And so this is God's armor. This is the armor that, that Jesus has already worn, and he's proven its sufficiency. And so he's worn these shoes, but in wearing them, Jesus has not only come to proclaim the good news, but to come and do everything that... Um, guarantees the promises of that good news. So verse, first, Jesus proclaims the good news. This is what Jesus was saying in his very first sermon as he enters in, into the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <laughs> First sermon. <laughs> and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture <laughs> has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so this is what we see throughout his earthly ministry, declaring the good news of peace. He declared it to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4.13. On that day, this woman, because of the shame of her five failed marriages, comes under the cloak of the hottest part of the day so no one else would be there, and she meets Jesus. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, remember they made it at a well, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He brought healing also and wholeness to the lepers, his very touch overwhelming their disease, which itself is a picture of how sin eats and eats and eats until there's nothing left but an ashen husk. Jesus came and his touch overwhelmed that disease. He even raised the dead, showing his power over even our last enemy, death itself. These and many more, Jesus proclaimed the good news. Good news that removes both guilt and shame, that defeats the power of sin, that overcomes the death that our sin deserves. And all of that purchased through his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And we've spoken of Christ's wearing the armor since we started this section, verse 10, a couple weeks ago. That's a, it's an amazing thing for us to consider, Jesus wearing this armor that we've been given. And so we look back, we think belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, now gospel shoes of, of peace. Jesus being God and very God, possessed all that is of the divine nature for all eternity. As the eternally begotten Son, co-equal to His eternal Father, He bared bore all the same attributes eternally before history began. And this Jesus was incarnate, taking upon himself human flesh, living like us, flesh and bone, as the second Adam. The first Adam came into paradise and he failed. Second Adam, Jesus, came into a groaning creation and he succeeded into a world where none are righteous, not even one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Into a world where everyone would turn aside, where all have become worthless, where no one does good. He came to a world of men whose throats were open graves with tongues that are used to lie and manipulate, with poison under their lips. He came to those whose mouths were full of cursing and bitterness, to men whose feet were swift to murder and torture, kill babies, put children in in coal mines to kill the Son of God, to men whose paths were ruin and misery, who did not know how to be at peace, who had no fear of God before their eyes. This is the world into which the divine warrior came, equal in every way to God, but yet not shielded from pain, not shielded even from grief. And so he wore the belt of truth. And he answered the devil with the truth. And he wore the breastplate of righteousness, perfectly observing all of the thou shalls or keeping all of the thou shalls and never breaking any of the thou shall nots. And then he died the death we deserved 
Isaiah 53, rejected by those who would not seek God, bearing the griefs and carrying our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then he was raised from the dead, as Isaiah says, that he shall see his offspring and be satisfied, making many to be counted righteous. Jesus surely wore the gospel shoes of peace before we did and found them sufficient. So what does that mean for us? Well, first it means that if we've believed Jesus' good news and in him who has declared it and accomplished it, we stand in that peace. And so first we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, of course, the the greatest peace we can possibly fathom. How often do we dwell upon that peace? That through faith, we are at peace with God. Not through our work, not through our labors, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're at peace with God. If you continue on down through Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, you begin to pick up on some themes that, that Paul is trying to drive forth. We've already mentioned it pretty much in the last point, but in verse 6, we are weak, unable to muster the strength to, to observe God's law, but more than that, we're ungodly, not like God. Verse 7, we're not righteous, not acquiring any of the righteousness we need to, to be able to stand before God. We didn't keep any of the thou shalts. Verse 8, we broke all of the thou shall nots. Verse 9, we deserved the wrath of God. Verse 10, we were enemies, and now because of faith, we're justified. Declared righteous as though we kept all of the thou shalt and didn't break any of the thou shalt nots. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're no longer enemies but friends. We're reconciled to God. And nothing, nothing shall ever change that. Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not us. Not the devil. Nothing. And this is all very practical. As it soars in our minds or our hearts begin to burst forth, it's all very practical. Psalm 66, 8 through 9. Bless our God, O peoples. The sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our foot slip. Or Proverbs 3.23, then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. Three verses later, verse 26, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And so this is the armor that Christ has worn and given to us by grace through faith. Again, as we said last week, it's in the middle voice. It is something that we must every day practically put upon ourselves. And that's the readiness part. We must put it on just like we do the belt of truth. We must put it on just like we do the the breastplate of righteousness every day. And so know the gospel and preach the gospel first to yourself. I think Kiefer mentioned in his prayer this morning the gospel is something that we need to hear over and over again to be reminded that Christ has finished the work for us and that we stand in peace because of that work. Such focus will keep us from slipping when certainly trials come our way or when suffering hits us or even when temptation comes. 
And so every day we are to look to our divine warrior who wore the armor before us. We are to look to the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, the one who's accomplished everything. And be reminded of the peace that he has made between you and God. We do, what do we face in the world that could possibly, possibly compare to that or threaten that? Our answer to that, and not being so quick to answer, reminds us that we need to dwell upon this peace that we have with God far more than we do. So peace with God, we also have peace with men. Ephesians 2, 14 through 19, we've already been through this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, and has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So here, Jew and Gentile, believers have been made one new man. So we talked about this six months ago, probably. The walls that made them hostile to one another have been brought down by Christ's sacrifice. They both come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In today's world where everyone is fighting to divide, in the church alone we are able to show what unity looks like, what true brotherhood looks like. We do that not by merely overlooking our differences, but by looking to Christ and seeing that in Him we have more in common than we have different, than we are different, and the things that we have in common are far more glorious than our differences. Our differences are not wiped away, but they're insignificant compared to the things that really matter. And so we, above all, should be showing, shining forth this peace that can be had between brothers only within the church. We talked about, I think Nick asked the question earlier, how do we enter into these conversations? I think in tumultuous times, it's the easiest time to share the gospel. Someone somewhere is always worried about something, thinking about something. There's something on the news or something going on in the world. There's some sort of calamity that's all around us. You ask, what is your solution to these things? Just bring it up. What is your solution to these things? Well, let me tell you, there's only one solution, and it's found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what their issue is. You can listen, eavesdrop is what I do, and listen to people's conversations and find out what they're talking about and then just enter yourself into it and talk about the gospel. It really is easy. It's hard at first if you're not used to it, and it feels like, I think, Alex, you said that you might, maybe thought they might be really aggressive to you. And sometimes they are, but it's usually with words, and so it's not a... It's not a bad thing, um, um, but, but usually people are willing to talk. I've, I've found that, um, even in the most hot-button issues like race and transgender stuff, people are willing to talk. Um, it's just the mobs on TV that are crazy. Um, so anyway, prepare yourself with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Don't let, within us, don't let the, the differences divide us. Don't focus so much on those things. I went to a conference, Presbyterian conference this week. I think there was a handful of Reformed Baptists there. Every time I met somebody, they'd say, are you PCA or OPC? I said, keep going. Are you independent? Keep going. 
Reformed Baptist. Like, why are you here? You know, and so I informed him, we're really Reformed. No, I didn't say that. Well, I did a couple of times, but just in jest. But we had more in common. We had more reason to gather together and to, to worship, and we had to be divided. And so it was a glorious, a glorious time. Um, I hope I didn't. My sense of humor isn't always go over well. But, um, so peace with God, peace with man. Show that. Love that. Um, be eager um, to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And then also we have a peace that God brings it's like well-being. That's what shalom means. It's an overall well-being. And so we have Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. Or Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which I think we looked at last week or the week before. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What are you anxious about? The peace of God. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, the world's sense of peace goes up and down and up and down based upon their circumstances. But ours is secure. Our peace is founded upon eternal things, eternal truths that can never change our peace. And so circumstances will be difficult. Darker providence will be visited upon us and God will bring it for our good and for his glory and the good of others outside of us. Hard things will happen. Jobs will be lost. Lives will be lost. Sicknesses will come upon us. But we have a peace that's eternal. We have a peace that's been purchased by Christ and cannot be changed. Um, do your feet tend to slip when circumstances like that hit? Honestly, yes. And so the answer to that is Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things um, that are on earth. Now, if our minds are up there, then these things will seem insignificant. I was, a few months ago, I was flying into Seattle. Have you ever flown into Seattle? You're flying into Seattle, and all you see really is the Cascade Mountains if it's not overcast, which is once a year maybe. But you're flying into Seattle and I could see the Cascade Mountains, and it was beautiful. And then as I entered down into the city, all I could see was garbage everywhere. And people, every store I went to, were talking about how they need to get out of here because of how bad it is. It's unsafe. You can't go to Pike's Marketplace anymore and watch the people throw the fish. And then when I left, I saw the mountains again. <laughs> Set your minds up there. Have you ever been on a high place like that? Been on a mountain, climbed a mountain, you look down... And everything down there just seems insignificant. But when circumstances begin to, to, to trouble us and to cause our feet to slip, set your minds on the things that are above. Get your minds up there. And these things down here will be less, less significant. Um, we need a higher perspective when our peace is threatened. So that's the peace we have in Christ if we believed. We have peace with God peace with man, and we have an overall well-being in every situation of life because of what Jesus Christ has done to bring us peace. So are your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace? The last section um, 
is really feet fitted with a readiness to, to preach the gospel. So if you would, turn back to Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. Somehow none of this got onto, onto my iPad from my computer, so we're just going to look at this. <laughs> Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. Three points. Does anyone have an outline so I can just be reminded of this? That's not it. Um, I got it. 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So we're going to go through this in three sections very quickly. Each one is really quick. But first notice the temperament or the attitude of the person who's bringing the good news. So you have um, brings good news of, of happiness. You have um, watchmen lifting up their voices, singing for joy. Uh, you have uh, Zion itself breaking forth together into singing. Um, you have comforted people. Uh, the character of the message should also be the character of the herald who brings the, the good news. We've already talked about how amazing and how outstanding and glorious this message is. That should fill our hearts. And so we should deliver it in the same way. It should be a, a happy message that we're delivering or deliver it with happiness, with joy. Not a worldly happiness, but a deep-seated one. But Isaiah here lists three Part of this message, there's three points to his message here, um, and it's basically the same uh, for us. And the first one is that verse 7, and, and it's, it's, uh, under your God reigns. And so as, as, as they were looking in Isaiah's time, as they're looking out from the, from the watchtower or off the walls, and they're looking out, what they're expecting or anticipating is judgment, or is the armies coming. As they strain their eyes, they're surprised, and they see someone running which means they're coming with good news. Um, and so they see someone running to bring this good news. And then the next point, um, and we have that same news. And so Isaiah is saying no longer are the Babylonians in charge. Don't think of the Babylonians as reigning or don't think of Marduk as reigning or Nabu as reigning, these false gods. Our God reigns. And that's the message we declare to everyone today. People aren't worshiping Marduk and Nabo today, but they are worshiping false idols. They're worshiping things like money and success and beauty and relationships. And none of those things can satisfy. None of those things can, can carry forth or, or bring to fruition promises that they've made. But our God does. Our God reigns. And our God can satisfy every longing in our heart can satisfy us, complete us, or give us contentment for everything that we have. And the second point is the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. It would have been a good fit. It would have been a just fit end for Jerusalem to be completely wasted. But throughout even Isaiah, as judgment is promised, you see these little snippets of hope. Isaiah chapter uh, 11, you see a shelter. Chapter 1, I think, is it chapter 1? You see a, a shelter left in a waste. Everything's been destroyed, but this one little shelter stands. Or you have all the trees are cut down, but this one stump stands, and out of it is going to sprout a, a, 
a sprout or a shoot um, that will, of course, point us to Jesus Christ. And certainly, um, Jerusalem, Israel, did not deserve it. And so it reminds us that God is always comforting us, that God has redeemed us, not by our works, but by grace and by grace alone. And the last part, I think, is something one of the most beautiful. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Turn, turn to Isaiah 19, which I think is just appropriate for any time you live, but I think maybe with Alex here today and hearing what's going on in the Ukraine and all that's happened with Russia. Isaiah 19, verse 23. This is what happens when my notes fail me. We just start looking all over. <laughs> but um, uh, in that day, there will be a highway. So Isaiah 19, 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And so you have this, this, convert, this highway that converges the three nations together. Egypt and Assyria may not affect us all that much as we hear those terms, but think of Nazi Germany, or think of Russia, or think of communists in, in, in China. Like, those are going to be worshiping with those that they had oppressed. And that's the picture here. The highway brings them together. The gospel, the same gospel, because the gospel is all by grace and not of merit, the same gospel that saved God's chosen people, the remnant within Israel, is the same God that will, that will also save their oppressors, the Egyptians and the Assyrians. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. And it reminds us that it's for all the nations and it's for us as well. And so true Israel is a diverse group of people with oppressors and oppressed, with Jews and Gentiles, with cultures, different cultures, different languages, all together praising and worshiping our great God because of the peace that Christ has won for us together. That's the message that we declare. Our God reigns. He's sufficient to fill up, to satisfy every longing that you have. Our God is the God who redeems, not because you earn it, but by grace. And our God is so God, this peace is so great that it brings oppressors and oppressed together. Wouldn't that be a joyous thing? As we share the gospel, one of the reasons why we should share the gospel with, with joy and hold out comfort to those who are opposed to us, who fight against us, who you know are going to be obstinate against you, is because God's gospel is able to save even the hardest of hearts. Evidence is yours. So that's for us today. If you're a believer, stand in the peace that Christ has won for you and then preach the gospel of peace. And remember that at the ending of the Great Commission, all these things are just entering my mind, ending of the Great Commission is that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age, the age we're living in. The devil, the devil is, is scheming against us with lies and accusations. As we preach the gospel, Christ is still the original herald, and he's preaching the gospel through us. And so he gives mouth, words to our dumb mouths, and he opens the ears of those who we are 
speaking to sometimes if there is left and he softens their hearts for them to receive it and it's all by his glory and so go with confidence and boldness to share this glorious message of peace if you're not a believer here this morning my prayer is for you to hear you have bad feet that go to bad places because you don't have gospel shoes that's a metaphor. What you really need to hear is that outside of Christ, an eternal divine violence is waiting for you. But with Christ, you are safe. In Christ, you have peace. But you must believe the gospel and repent of your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We were in a lot of different places today. Old Testament, New Testament. I pray uh, that, that you will bless this time, that you'll use these words to draw our eyes, despite me, to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that indeed he's been magnified, that a light has been cast on him, for that's where the light belongs. Father, we pray that you would encourage all of us to stand in the peace that you have won for us. So often we let our feet slip for the, mind the smallest of things, and yet you have given us a peace that our feet will not slip from by your grace. And Father, I pray that you would help us to then be excited to, to with joy, run across the mountains to the people, as Alec said earlier, that's in our, at a restaurant or in a coffee shop or people we work with or a neighborhood or, or in Poland. That we would go and that we would preach this good news of peace. And for the one here or many here who do not yet know you, Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do and that is to preach peace to them in a way that I can't, into the recess of their souls, causing them to, to come alive, to see Christ and the wonder that he is, to hear the message as it is to be heard with joy, with comfort. And they might be given a heart that beats, that is alive, to feel not only the dread of their sin, but the hope and the peace that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would do that work even today. In Christ's precious name, amen.